Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Draft Deeper on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. My name is Nathan Grubel. You know me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. Joining me tonight is my producer, Kevin Black, as always. And as a co-host, Maxwell Baumbach is unfortunately not here with us tonight. He's got a lot going on in his life. I know it's it's the impossible task to get mm-hmm. all three of us together for a podcast. Maybe yeah. we'll pull it off next week. But that being said, Stephen Gillespie is still here with me. So we will have no doubt a banger show talking about Stephen. I, I think some some relatively big names. We're going to discuss tonight, right? Like these aren't just coming out of nowhere. These are legitimate names, but for one reason or another that we'll discuss, we're talking about these three in particular, as well as a few names that you've written about, but these three I'm referencing, they're coming up on my morning dunk column this week because they're actually fallers on my big board. They're some of my biggest fallers, movers trending downwards. So I'm really excited to talk about some prospects, maybe for negative reasons but i think Stephen, what we like to do on draft keepers we also like to find the optimism in draft mm-hmm. stocks so I, I think we'll have some good discussions about these guys tonight how you doing how you feeling about what we're doing tonight man nathan i'm good i'm glad to be back um people may see a noticeable change in appearance if you're watching live the mustache is gone i got sick and i didn't appreciate the maintenance that come along with blowing my nose a lot so must <laughs> the mustache is gone um, the sickness is now gone to just a residual cough, but I'm excited to be here. And the list of names that we're covering today, Nathan, you're right. You know, there's a there's a big lull in the draft community right now where we're reaching for names to talk about. But with the piece that you're releasing next week, I'm super excited because we still get to talk about some of these more uh, prominent names within the draft community just in a different way. And I'm excited to get into it tonight. So by the time this podcast comes out a little bit later on Monday morning, you'll be able to read the part two of my morning column that I titled Draft Deeper's Top Risers and Fallers. And I certainly went through some of the top risers last week. Maxwell and I talked about some fun names on the podcast, but this week I got Steven to talk about some of the bigger fallers. And I picked five names in particular for this column. And then Mm -hmm. obviously, like I said, we're going to talk about three out of five of those names. And then Steven has some players who he's taken the time to not only write about over the last few weeks, but he got to interview one of them as well. So I can't wait to talk with him about an interview, not just one of the writings that he's done, but we're going to dive in here to take a look at some fallers on. Yeah. This is, this is my personal draft board, right? I feel like we have to to make that clear. We're not talking about the no ceilings composite board. We're talking about my personal big board. So we'll discuss my ranking of these players. Steven, I'm sure we'll throw in where he has these guys ranked on his personal big board. So Let's start off with Dylan Mitchell out of Texas mm-hmm. was the first follower that I wanted to write about this week. So on my prior edition of my board, AKA my ranking that would have been used or referenced on our last mock posit podcast, he mm-hmm. was 23 on my personal board. Now he sits at 36. 
So that's that's a fairly significant drop. So were you factoring where you probably was preseason, right, Stephen? Like around the lottery, maybe he was in the lottery, maybe yeah. he was in your top 20 conversation. Then he kind of slid into my my later first round, and now he's viewed more as an early second round prospect on my board. That that That's a pretty significant decrease. That's 13 spots. We talk about movement on a big board. If we're inside the lottery, maybe like the top seven, top eight prospects, you move like a spot or two. That's still pretty significant because there's only so many spots you can move up. Right. When we get in the later portions of the board, if you're taking a double digit decrease yeah. within an update on a big board, that means something significant had to have been swung for you in your evaluation to really make that kind of a move. And I don't know if there's anything that's standing out to me about Mitchell's game. That's a really obvious negative. Like there's something wrong with his game in that sense. And that's why I moved him down, Stephen. Maybe for, for me, probably for you, it's more so I'm not seeing enough of what I need to, to put a higher draft grade on him. Right. So coming into the season, he was, by by multiple outlets, he was the fourth ranked prospect in the freshman oh, yeah. class. I, I I did not look up to reference what the the RCI average ranking was, but I know ESPN had him fourth. I know there are a few outlets who had him fourth. To be a top five prospect in your incoming freshman class, and now you're here, right on at least one board, and it seems like he's trending downwards for a lot of people in the space, not just some of us yeah. at no ceilings. How did we get here? Well, he was viewed as a two-way threat, right? And he was he was utilized in high school as a play finisher in the paint. He caused all sorts of havoc on defense. He can be a weak side rim protector, a switchable defender. And then when you get him out in the break, obviously because of his athleticism, how high he can get up, he is a transition highlight machine. But you fast yep. forward to what his career is looking like for the Longhorns. It's It's been a little bit of a mixed bag, right? We're, we're still seeing some of the dunks. We're still seeing some of the interior finishing. We're seeing some of the defense that we saw in high school, but to me, we're not seeing a complete offensive package. He's only averaging seven points on the season. He is shooting 63% from the field, which is yep. great, right? Like if you're a prospect and you're, we're looking at you for the NBA draft, you need to be able to put the ball in the basket efficiently mm -hmm. in some sort of way, right? But what stands out to me, Stephen, and this is, I think I brought this up on Draft Deeper when we've talked about Dylan Mitchell before, but I kind of had a feeling that his evaluation might be a version of like Kendall Brown 2.0. Yeah. It, it's funny. We talked about Kendall Brown last year, how he was afraid to even look at the rim. Yeah. Well, Dylan Mitchell, I wouldn't say is afraid to look at the rim in every sense, but he, he does not have the confidence and the willingness to take jump shots. He's taken six jump shots yeah, on this year, the entire good. season. He's two of six on jumpers. Everything else has come inside the paint or it's come from the free throw line. And maybe it's that the touch from the free throw line isn't giving him confidence. He's about 49% for the free throw line. Maybe that's where he's lost some confidence is his willingness to, to not want to take a lot of jump shots. Maybe he's not as confident in something mechanically, although I don't think, and Corey and I have talked about this, I don't think his mechanics are that bad on his jumper. I think there there is some sort of signs of touch, right? You, you can't be a 63% finisher from the field and not have touch to at least want to work on that part of your game, right? To be able to shoot jump shots and be more of a threat from the perimeter. But in a league where jump shooting has become such a priority, yeah. right? If you aren't a willing shooter and you're not a true big man, despite how you may be 
utilized by your college team as a small ball five, whatever the case may be. I don't foresee him being a small ball five in the NBA. No. He's going to be more of like a wing four. But if you don't have that jump shot, Steven, it, it's a problem. And then the fact that I'm curious about some of your thoughts with his defense too, not just the yeah. offensive stuff. I mean, I want your full breakdown, but the defense, it hasn't been spectacular to me. Mm-hmm. Like he's shown good effort. He's been active. His rebounding, his offensive rebounding percentage is pretty good. Yep. But I don't think his defense has been all that it's cracked up to be. And if you're drafting him to be a defensive specialist, right, am I going to want to throw a priority first-round pick at you? I'm still already a little bit concerned about that. But even some of these defensive specialists that we can throw out, like a, like a Matisse Thibel or some other names, for example, I don't think Dylan Mitchell is even that level of defender to where we're go- I'm going to look at him with that label and I'm going to be confident taking him with like a top 20 first round pick for example so that's just a number of reasons why he's fallen down my personal big board I'm not saying he can't become a good player in the NBA it's just right now I think his game could use a little bit more seasoning another year in college and then maybe the skill game catches up with where his athletic talents are at and then we see a little bit different of a player via his draft stock in next year's draft as opposed to this one where where are you kind of out on Dylan Mitchell well, there's a lot going on with with that, Nathan. And right now, I have him on on my board at 46. And if I'm not mistaken, that's relatively close to where Kendall Brown was taken in last mm-hmm. year's draft, right? So, um, pretty apt for the Kendall Brown 2.0 comparison. Let me just throw some things that I noticed, right? Like when I watch the game, and then when I go back and look at the game logs, I like to take away little anecdotes from what his game is telling me, both on the floor and on the and on the game sheets. Um, he hasn't made a free throw since December 12th, and he's only attempted two since that time, and he's missed both. Um, he hasn't attempted a three all season long. I believe Rafael Barlow has mentioned that he had attempted like 15 jumpers since like AAU ball or something like that. So it's been well chronicled that he is uh, not a very big fan of attempting a jumper uh, very often. His last game in double digits was December 27th against Texas A&M Commerce. Um, really his only credible scoring game that I – that I can remember and I went back and looked at was against Creighton on December 1st, where he scored 10 points. You mentioned the rebounding. I think he rebounds with a, at a great rate. He's that's got a that's his best skill. In, in, exactly. In, right. That's his best skill in your opinion right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would put defense and rebounding probably on the same uh, level of ranking in, in terms of like what he's best at. But I, I think that the rebounding has actually been more consistent than the defense. And you spoke to that, absolutely. you know, the, the man-to-man is is good in spots. Um, he's had some really good games where he's uh he's he's flexed his you know his strength, his footwork, and recoverability things like that. But I feel like he relies on the recoverability a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the technique can be cleaned up a little bit. So Nathan, when I'm when I'm looking at him, and I'm trying to figure out where I want to take a guy like this, you mentioned that you project him to play kind of like the three-four. I think that that's pretty apt. Um, if you if you're not going to handle the ball, if you're not re- a real good connective type player. You can't shoot. Um, and your defense, like your defense can even be good at a, at a collegiate level, but the game is going to change a lot when you move up. And rookies typically aren't like lockdown defenders at the next level. Not everybody is going to be your Herb Jones or your, or your Mitchells or anything like that. So more, there's a higher probability that even his strongest uh, you know, skill set is going to be negated at the next level. Why would I want to take that in the first round? You- so if I'm... 
you mentioned the the like the Herb Jones type of comparison, right? Mm-hmm. The difference between Dylan Mitchell and one of these other defensive swing specialists that that you could list off in the NBA. Those guys are keeping men in front of them at all times. Like yeah. I, I actually like that you referenced the recoverability or having to lean on it a little bit in Mitchell's case. He's letting guys get by him, and then when yeah. somebody and any of these matchups in particular, when they forget big men, let alone like some of the the three fours that he's being asked to guard at the college yep. level. When they get too deep in the paint, there's nothing he's doing to stop them. He's not strong enough to properly wall off anybody from having their way and scoring mm-hmm. over him in the paint. You see it all the time. He'll just have his two hands up, and he's kind of just left at, I, I can't really do anything. If I try to go yep. at somebody, I'm not strong enough, I'm going to foul him, and I'm going to get in foul trouble, then I'm going to be yanked off the court either way. So to, to me, that's the bigger thing with his defense. I think he needs to be much more attentive and focused on locking and keeping guys in front of him. Otherwise, unless he does gain the requisite strength to be able to tackle guys in the painted yep. area, he's going to be at a net negative defensively in the NBA, not just what we're talking about in college. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're talking about at his position, you're going to be lined up against some of the best players that the league has to offer. It's not like you're going to yep. draft him at that 3-4 spot and be like, okay, we're going to put you on the least effective forward in the NBA. I mean, if you look at, you know, who the top performers are right now at the next level up, he's going to have his hands full. And again, the probability that he's going to come in and be an impact defender day one, let alone just be an average one. I Again, I don't know if I want to roll the dice with that in the first round. So I think that him falling down your board is um, pretty prudent on your part. You know, I know that you recently went on your big film dive and I'm glad to see that I'm not crazy in where I have him ranked at 46 right now. And there's still a number of credible outlets, uh, people who I respect that have him significantly higher than I do. And it, uh, you know, it makes me want to go back and watch him more, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty satisfied with where I have him right now. I mean, if, if I was to have the time, right, to list out the names that I have ahead of him, I feel like there would be credible cases to do that. But um, I I look at it. Shot chart too. It's it's literally the same thing as what we were looking yeah. at last year with Kendall Brown. He rates out in the 92nd percentile in terms of total offense, which is an excellent mm-hmm. rating. But break down the play types as to what actually encompasses that. It's it's cuts and it's transition finishes. Yep. Like that's it. So to your point, uh, I'll go back to another thing that you just said. You talked about if you aren't a connective tissue type of piece on the floor either. He's yep. not a high level passer. He's averaging no. under an assist per game. So exactly. You're, you're not looking at him to handle the ball in any way, shape, or form. And when he does get the ball in these low low usage moments where he could probably look to just move it somewhere else if his straight beeline drive to the basket isn't there, he's not doing those types of little things either. That In, in Kendall Brown's case, Kendall Brown actually did that. Kendall Brown was yeah. some sort of connective tissue for Baylor at different points. He would catch the ball, he'd make that baseline drive, and he'd be very quick to get rid of it if he didn't have a clean shot at the rim. He would make those little bounce passes. He's He'd whip it out back to the top of the key. You don't see any of that stuff in Dylan Mitchell's game. I don't really see the effective post game that he showed. He showed some stuff in high school that was interesting. Mm-hmm. He'd make like some some fadeaway shots, albeit not many of them, as you mentioned, Rafael Barlow's take on, on the jump shooting stuff. But th- there, were, th- there were highlights that you could find on the high school tape to where there are some interesting pieces that if he showed more of offensively, we'd be talking about him in a different light. And again, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's inability, if it's lack of confidence or lack of will, where, where are you kind of at with what you've seen? Cause it's, it's really easy to watch his six jump shots that yeah. he's taken. There's only six of them. Yeah. That's we'll like five seconds. Long. 
That's right. That's like five, 10 seconds of your day. But yeah. what do you think about the shot overall? Because again, I, I don't think it's bad. I think he just needs to find whatever willingness inside of him to take more of them. And I think we might be having a little bit different of a conversation. Well, yeah, I think that there's going to be a contingent of people that say, well, look at the what's going on you know, with the infrastructure at Texas right now. I mean, with the coaching and oh, some yeah, of the changes, of things like that. Like, you might could look into that. We kind of had the same thing happen last year with LSU. Um, but overall, I think that confidence is the biggest part of it, right? Because you're not shooting at all. You know, it's not like it's not like you're shooting and people are saying like, hey, why don't we work on this? Like, that's not your shot or anything like that. You're not even giving evaluators an opportunity to assess where you are. You know, and some people might look at that as potential. You know, there's a, a good group of people that say, like, well, if he just adds a jump shot, he's going to be a really good player. Well, there's not always that possibility that you can add a jump shot. And if this is where his baseline is and we don't project that the shot's going to um, improve at a substantial level, there's a lot of holes in his game. And again, the position that he plays, the role that he would play at the next level, um, I, I don't think that is worth investing in a first round pick. But yeah, the confidence is going to be the biggest key because. I don't even trust him, Nathan, to, to dribble the ball. You know what I mean? Like he's, and I'm not saying that, like, I'm not like being hyperbolic, like seriously. No, that's a the problem. Ball in the deck, yeah. Him putting the ball in the deck is, is, is concerning. Like you can't run offense through him. Like he's going to be a finisher. And there might be some people that say, well, look at what Shane Sharp is doing at the NBA because he's an athlete. He's being used on cuts and being a play finisher. Shane Sharp has ball skills. Like, exactly let's, let's yeah let's not let's not cut that up and put them in the same sense like yeah to your point well, like, what i'm one saying has like skills, one doesn't exactly but if you're saying like well if the right team drafts him and puts him in a similar spot to where all he is doing is play finishing and, and playing hustle defense like there might be a team or two out there nathan where he can go on and and be successful but if you're looking if if you're looking at a, like a probability rating or anything like that right now i'm not i'm not super confident and maybe um, coming back is the right answer. It might not even be on this Texas team because we don't know what it's going to look like. And it's not like they're running anything for him to be an offensive threat either. So part of it's kind of iced out. Part of it is um, confidence. But if he's being iced out, it, the team it sees more of him than anybody else. So they're well aware of his shortcomings. And if the team isn't getting him involved on that end of the ball, that speaks to where his game is right now. Where, this, where the league is at at this point, we we've already seen it trending much more in the direction of offense. And yep. this is something that I'm sure we'll talk about on future draft shows, this offensive explosion that's occurring right now in the NBA. Everybody's De talking about it. Defense is important, but yep. you can see clearly where the league and its best players are going. And if you can't put the ball in the basket from the perimeter in some form or fashion, not even just from the three point line, if you're not even a threat to pull up, like stop and go to some sort of runner or push shot or whatever the case may be, outside of the painted area, you better be one of the best defenders in the world yeah. or you're not going to get playing time on an NBA. Or put pressure on the rim. Like you that, could, that that, at a forward spot, like Which comes you can have gravity or you can have pressure. He doesn't have either. And that's, and that's a substantial problem for him. Exactly. So I was going to ask one last question about his stock, but I think I'm actually going to save that till after we talk about this next player. So Sorry. This next prospect we're going to talk about, Stephen, I'm going to get into it with a quote. There is a specific quote that I shared on an episode of Draft Deeper just before the holidays started. This thing is already coming back to bite me in the ass. 
and Uh-oh. we're we're not even a month from the holidays. I remember. So, do you remember what I said? So yeah, for the audience said, listening, you could book if, it. If you haven't listened to that episode of Draft Deeper, here's what the quote was: Within the next three months, there are two prospects we'll be talking about jumping in the lottery territory. Noah Clowney, I think I've gotten that one right. Right, he's Look, probably been. Good. He looks like a top twenty prospect right now at this point. Yeah, he looks good. And Tyrese Proctor, who is the not name so that we're going to talk about in this yeah. segment. Not, not so much. I, I write in my column. Well, I may have gotten half of that right. So, one of them has rapidly jumped up my board. Like I said, Clowney. You can you can look at a number of different outlets at this point and where people are putting him in mock drafts, and he's a pretty consensus top twenty, top twenty five guy right now. Yeah, I don't really see that changing. I think we have enough evidence to want to make a bet on a player like him. But as as for Proctor, Proctor's in a tough situation, Stephen, because first mm. of all, let's just call it what it is. Despite the record that Duke has, which it should mean a little something because the, the the parody that exists in college basketball right now is just it's it's freaking something else, man. So if you have the number of wins that you cast, that you still should be commended in some form or fashion. Sure. But if you watch that team play basketball, they are they are grinding out some of these wins, man. Like it is it's not to the standard that we expect from this program. It it is not pretty basketball, yeah. right? Like there to me, from what I see, I see a lack of leadership. I see a lack of offensive mm. execution and defensive fundamentals across multiple positions. So Kyle Filipowski, you and I can probably agree, he's been the best Duke Blue Devil this yeah. year. But it's not just him in this freshman class who is expected to step up and make contributions on a pretty significant level. It was it was Proctor. It was mm-hmm. Tariq Whitehead, who's coming back from an yep. injury, who still hasn't gotten his footing under him fully. It was Derek Lively, who at this point, Shoot, there there are some people who have thrown him in like the 40s and the 50s on their draft boards. So like, brother, like good good luck coming back from that. And yeah. Mark Mitchell, who I'll I'll talk more about his role in this in a second. But these are all freshmen who were expected to be contributing at a high level, who for one reason or another aren't. And the the raw talent for Duke, the raw mm-hmm. talent that these guys have, along with the experienced guys like Roach like the the center Ryan Young, like there's enough talent here to have this team carry themselves, carry itself, I should say, two wins, even in a conference like the ACC. But yep. when we talk about competing for a national championship, this team is not on that level. I would not advise anyone to make a futures bet out there. If you are betting legally, do not make a futures bet on Duke to win the national championship. I am not buying into the chemistry and the execution on this team. And it really, Steven, it comes back to the point guard position, which is what Proctor's being asked to play on the floor, right? He's being looked at, looked to, to be like a go-to playmaker. That's, that's not what he's been, right? So you can break down his game in a number of different ways. If he's not making a hit ahead pass in transition or making the very basic one read out of a pick and roll set, he's not getting the ball to where it needs to go. He's yeah. missing guys. He's not getting the ball out. He's settling for these tough shots. It's becoming a turnover. And when you don't have that point guard to spray the ball all over the place to these different play finishers, right? I, I don't know how you feel anymore since we've last talked about Kyle Filipowski, but to me, he's a play finisher. I get that he handles the yeah. ball for a seven footer, but to have to do what he is being asked to at the volume on a nightly basis, 
that to me is just not the role he's going to play in the NBA. Like he dribbles, dribbles yeah. around. He puts the ball behind his back. To me, he doesn't really go anywhere with it, right? When we talk about like functional yeah. ball skills, I, I don't really see the function the that's wibble. coming out of it. Yeah. it. Exactly. So, and then Dariq Whitehead, we we think there's still more upside with Dariq, but right now he's sure. purely a spot up guy. At best, yeah. you're going to get him on, on a nice beeline cut along the baseline and he's going to be able to, to to jam the ball home, right? Like the absolute best mm-hmm. case scenario. Um, a guy like Derek Lively, he is not a post-up big. He is a roll man, a lob catcher. He, all of these players, and then Mark Mitchell, really the same thing. We we look yeah. at him as like a corner spacer. He's not really the best corner spacer. Not to me, he's much more of probably. a, let's get him cut into the basket. Let's get him downhill. And then he can either finish that play himself or he can actually redirect the ball a little bit and get it to where it needs to go. But either way, all of these guys are play finishers who need to be set up in motion and need the right guy to get them the ball at the right times. Proctor hasn't been that guy. So you look at, he hasn't really been the right on-the-ball playmaker for this team. I'm not looking at him as an off-the-ball guy. He's not shooting the ball well enough to be an off-the-ball guy. And I'm buying into some of the shooting upside and the touch that's there. He's like 88% from the free-throw line. Like that... That, I think, is eventually going to translate into, I think you're going to become a good jump shooter, but it's not there for him right now. He needs the ball in his hands, and if he's not the right guy to have the ball in his hands for this team, he's just not going to look like a first-round prospect, in in, in my opinion, where he needs to be right now. So this is a guy who, if you give him more time, he's going to be able to come back for another year, and and I think boosts his draft stock, but... Where where are you kind of at with with what you've seen from from Proctor? Am I being a little too harsh on him? Where no. where where are you kind of at with with his stock? Well, Nathan, please correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot. We didn't talk about this beforehand, but didn't he reclassify to, to play this season? That that right, is so, absolutely correct. He could be a high school senior right now. So he could be a high school senior, and I think that this might be a good time to point out that like reclassifying doesn't always equal success. I mean, we're talking about Gigi Jackson, who people are now putting in like top seven level conversations right now who reclassified and is leading that were one of the leading scores in sec basketball and we could pick apart his game and, and there's people that certainly do certain aspects of it but he's doing a great job whereas proctor you're seeing like a more higher higher probability outcome of people that do reclassify who do have you know substantial holes in their game proctor was labeled as a as a pretty significant shooter but Moving from, you know, one style of basketball to another, playing with different, you know, types of players, that's quite a big an adjustment. And for Duke, you know, we talk about he should be able to, to move the ball around, but you went over the list of players on this team, Nathan. There's a lot of people that occupy the same space on this team. Yeah. And I think the spacing on this team really hurts the, uh, the, the out, you know, the likelihood that Proctor can, can hit a bunch of different high-level reads and when, when, a, when guys are standing right next to each other on the floor. Here's some of the anecdotes that I took away from the game log on top of the film that I watched, right? Out of the 17 games played, aggregators, please just understand that there might be some time difference here. Um, For a passer, he's only had two games with more than three assists. On threes, he's only had four games where he shot 40% or more from deep. He's got two blocks on the year, both of those in one game against Bellarmine. Um, He's got one game with uh, more than one steal, and he's only got five games in which he shot 50% or more from the floor and only five games in double-digit scoring. So nothing that's, like, super encouraging when you're talking about, like, a holistic offensive uh, point guard on a team, right? Defensively, you expect him reclassifying to 
to still be adjusting to the game. But Nathan, you're talking about this Duke team. It's a mess, man. Like one of their best players, one of the best players in all of college basketball. A lot of people projected hasn't met expectations. Another top level recruit who is coming in off of a lower body injury and still trying to literally find his footing. Um, and then, you know, Filipowski is competing with, with young for minutes and, you know, Jeremy Roach, I, I feel like Roach hasn't been as Roachy as a lot of people no. thought that he was going to be. This he has year. not Pro- looked that guy who helped them win real tournament games last yeah. year. He has not looked like that guy. Yeah. And so, but Proctor is getting real shot. And I think that coming into the season, that was a, a concern that we had coming in for Duke was, is Proctor as a reclassified young guy on this team going to get real minutes? He is. He's just not meeting the mark. Um, so on my board right now, Nathan, I have him at 39. Um, I feel like once you get at about 20 to 22, there's a pretty decent gap. And I don't think that it's out of the question that someone could rise up from like the, the early 40s to the high 30s, even late 20s, if there's a hot stretch of games and and, and some inspiring games that, that instill confidence in your assessment. But yeah, man, there's just, if you if you watch the film, you go over these anecdotes that I was able to pluck away from the game log, um, th- there's just too many concerns. And again, there's a lot of guards in this class that I'm more confident in uh, being caught up at the next level. I love these shot quality numbers on synergy as well. I freaking love yes. these. You, mm-hmm. you take a look at his most common play types where he's looking to score, which would mm-hmm. be out of the pick and roll and off spot ups. He's not taking high quality shots in either of them. Nope. And that's, that's absolutely reflected on the tape because as, as you and I have both said now, He's only making that one read out of pick and roll. If he can't hit yep. the roll man slipping to the basket, he's not making that next read across level. And he's that's not, a practice read, right? Like there are some yeah. reads out of the pick and roll that, and we'll talk about a couple of these guys later on in this podcast, but there are guys that can operate out of the pick and roll and they see everything. Like they know when a guy's cutting in off of a corner, they know when a guy's popping. The pick and roll and hitting the roller on the dive is something that is practiced exhaustively. In, in, in practices, right? So that is like more of a timing and understanding pass than it is necessarily a high level of feel. But the the play type in general too, it's a dance, right? So yes. so you 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 have your action where you're you're coming around the screen, you're either accepting or rejecting the screen. The 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 roller in that action is moving towards the basket or he's popping out away from the basket. And then your job as the point guard is to use that screen or reject it, whichever way the defense is leaning to penetrate and actually propel yourself forward, find a new position and then make the right reads. Am I, am I hitting the roll man? Mm. Am I looking to the corner to make that pass? Am I getting it back out on the wing? Am I just yeah. rejecting this play altogether and just pulling the ball back out, passing it to somebody else? And let's, let's reset the offense a little bit. Yep. Proctor's kind of just like standing there more often, or I won't say more often than not, but, but too many times for my liking, he's standing there and he's amount, not yeah. really, yeah, he's not getting into that next level of the defense. He's kind of just standing there hoping that somebody else does the work for him so that he can kind of just throw the ball or he's looking to pull up because he doesn't recognize the space that he's supposed to take. And he's settling for some of those poor looks that I'm referencing on the shock quality per, per synergy. Mm-hmm. So it's it's this dance that he hasn't quite mastered at the college level yet, and this team desperately, desperately, desperately needs a better pick-and-roll playmaker than Proctor. Now, what I will say about Proctor, Stephen, mm-hmm. is that when he is taking these pull-up jumpers and he's hitting them, he looks really freaking good. 
right? Like yeah. w- when he's making shots, he looks like the type of guard that we were all projecting as maybe he can be a top 20, top 25 pick. Maybe yep. he can possibly get up into the lottery conversation. And then you factor in, he's a damn good defender too, by the way. He is a yeah. really good point of attack defender at the guard position. Like he, he's six five, he's long. I fully trust him defensively. When he gets up to the next level as he continues to fill out, I think he could be one of the better 15 point guard defenders in the NBA. Okay. I think he'd be top half of the league as a defender at that position. But if he's not meeting all of the right thresholds offensively, again, it's a similar, not the same conversation to Dylan Mitchell, but it's a similar one. If I'm leaning on you for one end of the floor, but you're not producing at a high enough level offensively, where where am I going to factor you in in terms of minutes that I want to have guys on the floor? I want to put players, if I'm an NBA coach on the floor, who I know can put the ball in the basket at yeah. a high level. I want guys who can make multiple decisions, who can read what's going on, who can do a little bit of the read and react offense. We're not seeing that yet from Proctor, but he does have, in my opinion, the shot making that is going to translate like we've talked about. I think he's. I think he can become a good passer, not a great one, but I think he can be sure. a good passer. And at his size, with his first step, right when he chooses to actually, I was going to ask it. you. I was going to ask you about the athleticism because I'm not necessarily blown away by it. I don't view it as like a net negative. But when I'm considering guards in this class, Proctor doesn't scream like top tier athleticism for no. But you know, I, like, I, I certainly age, think it's for good his enough. class. Yeah, I think that it's fine, and that and that's kind of like where I think the crux of his his ranking is right now is that. He's not like a top tier athlete. And so when you're not a top tier athlete, you have to have like the requisite feel. And that's where I think right now he's struggling. And and feel isn't always uh, an innate natural ability. Sometimes it can be taught like it's not going to be at the same level as like your your high feel players or anything like that. But through repetition practice and and evaluating different reads like that could be something that improves. I was just curious to see what you thought about his athleticism, because I think that that does show up in some of the difficult shot um, kind of profile areas that he has right now. I don't I don't think he's a great athlete, but I think he is above average. And I think when when you factor in the size and the length that he does have, especially as he will continue to fill out, he's still really young. I think the strength combination, the size combination, his height, being able to see over the top of the defense. There are enough pluses. And then the, the last thing I guess I'll say, Stephen, is about the shooting. He looks comfortable as a shooter, right? And they've well, even that was the him... thing coming into the year, that he looked like a good shooter. Yeah, and, and the, there was there was one play from the Clemson game that just occurred this past weekend where yep. he, was, he was the inbounds guy. He got it in on the right corner, and then he caught the ball quickly from the big man. And it was kind of like a little bit like a movement type shot. He got himself set yeah. squared towards the basket. And he not he can that three from the corner. So like between the pull-up game, between some of these little signs that we're seeing of him maybe being able to shoot off movement and then the free throw touch, there are enough positive signs to his game to where I ask you the question, and this comes back to the the stock of Dylan Mitchell and Tyrese Proctor, between those two guys. Would you want to pre-draft? I know that that fancy little phrase right there. I would love you, that phrase. Would, yeah. Would you pre-draft either of these guys at like near the tail end of the first round this year? Because I think I I think I still would with Proctor, despite where I have him ranked on my board now, which is I believe thirty-seven is what That's I wrote in the column down him, from yeah. twenty-one. I think there's still a part of me that if an NBA team, if I had a scout telling me, hey, we're thinking about taking Proctor in the late first, 
I don't think I'd get mad at it. Like where, where are you at on that conversation with, with Proctor? And then you can throw Mitchell in there as well. Well, I think with pre-draft, right? Like you're looking at your teams that have a, a completely set roster, or you're looking at teams that have multiple first round picks. Um, the teams that have multiple first round picks, like I'm pretty set with Indiana's guard rotation right now. I don't think that Indiana is really, would really no, be hurting yeah, to he, try yeah, to add a, yep. a Proctor. Same thing with Utah. Um, Memphis. No, I, th- could I think Utah could take a swing. I, I think, I think so? it, it depends on. Well, so Utah's probably they have. They got they Sexton. Have, they got Conley. Like they, so they, they might they have might, two lottery picks. I think they do. Do they have a third? Yeah, they first round. They have they have two or they have two early first. I'm talking like if they want to trade back to to do. Oh, anything okay. Different. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. They, teams with multiple picks in, in in the draft that can they you know, don't, slide upside down. They don't have like a traditional point guard that's going to be on the roster after this year though no. i think i think conley and clarkson well clarkson's not pure point anyway but conley and clarkson no. i think they're both going to be gone so it's so it's sexton who i i still like whether he's a six man yeah. whether he's a starting two he's not the 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 traditional point guard though that i think proctor could grow into enough of yeah he just needs more time but so they could they could yeah. but i agree with indiana, indiana i wouldn't, wouldn't be- look his way I wouldn't be in a hurry to pre-draft him this year, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, because I think that, you know, there's just a lot of guards in this class, like even younger, like young ones that are freshman, sophomore level, that if I'm looking to pre-draft, uh, that I might want to be a little bit more riskier on. But I understand the 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 point that you're bringing up. He does have, you know, high upside value. He does. And that's why I think I would still value him in that territory. But right now, as of today, I have a second round grade on him. And I do yep. think... I have much more confidence in him versus Dylan Mitchell to where if they both went back to school, who could be the lottery pick between the yeah. two of them, I'd go Proctor all the way. I think he Easily. has legitimate legitimate ball skills, mm-hmm. two-way upside more so than Dylan Mitchell. I'd, Floor spacing, yeah. Exactly. So I yeah. I still value Proctor as a prospect. It just has not gone the way that I thought it was going to. But that's I won't put all of that entirely on him like we talked about. There, there's a good possibility that this Duke roster is hiding a lot of the, you know, strengths to his game right now. And the same could be said for all of these guys. It's just a weird mixture. It's, it's a very weird mixture. So the last prospect that we want to talk about in the fathers category, before we move on to some of the guys that Steven was able to write about, I'm really excited to hear what Steven has to say on, on mm-hmm. two of his guys, but Jalen Wilson is the last prospect who has fallen on my personal big board. So I had last time around, I had a late first round grade on him, had him 27 on my Mm -hmm. board. His new rank for me is 40. So I have him even lower than, than Dylan Mitchell and Tyrese Proctor. Maybe that's just because I'm still going to hang on as long as I can to that, that freshman, that really young player upside banking on. If we give these guys two or three years more as compared in comparison to where Wilson's at, like Wilson's an older player. He's, he's a senior. So he's had time to, season and develop and if we give that same time to those two other guys where are we going to be as far as projecting out their early nba career so that's yeah that's kind of where i'm at steven but i will say that we're, we're on like the last thread uh, of me at, at, at hanging on to that at this point like we're we're in mid-january so jalen wilson yeah. could be ahead of those guys by the next time we have a discussion like this but regardless he's fallen in the second round territory for for me i i don't have a first round grade on him anymore and as you'll be able to read in the column, I start out. This is a tricky evaluation, and this is some of what you were saying to me before the podcast. You wanted to have a discussion with Jalen yeah. Wilson. 
his raw numbers should indicate he has a real shot at being a first round pick, right? The dude's averaging 20, essentially 20 points and nine rebounds per game. But with the raw production has not come the efficiency. And it's a really interesting conversation to have because you could point, you could point that a number of different ways. You could, for, for all that I can talk about his 40% from the field, 33% from three point range, talk about some of the other splits when you do some of the synergy deep dive numbers. Yeah. You could point that conversation the other way at me, Steven, and say, well, he's been the number one guy for Kansas. He's had to be the man. He stepped up and he's embracing being a high volume scorer. Is he going to be asked to have that type of role in the NBA or is he going to be more of like a fourth, fifth option on an NBA team to where I would say, yeah, you're absolutely right. However, he's had a lower volume, lower usage role at Kansas, and he still hasn't been efficient in that role either. So by the numbers, despite how we can talk about his measurables, him being 6'8", him being one of these switchable wings with length, him, ha- him having the, the requisite athleticism to play in the NBA, we can list off all these positive indicators on top of the raw production, but where where is the efficiency value, right? And a line that I wrote in my column specifically is confidence can kill as much as develop if mm. it's abused. He seems okay. incredibly confident in himself to where he he has accepted this green light with open arms. And I just don't trust all the decisions he's made he's making as far as a shot taker, right? He's had some interesting flashes this year when he sort of sat back a little bit and looked to pass the ball and get yeah. other guys open and get them moving so that he can pass guys into shots. I think he has real vision. I think he has yeah. real ball skill. I think he's an actual first round type of talent, but just given where we're at, he's had this many years to become a more efficient player, regardless of the type of role he's playing. I just haven't seen that level of improvement to where I feel compelled. Like I need to spend a first round pick on this guy. If I can get him in like that, that early to mid second round, I'm feeling really good about the return on investment. I'm going to get with a player like Jalen Wilson. So that's, that's really my argument to why he's dropped down my board a little bit. You can make arguments in his favor when it comes to skill set, when it comes to measurables yeah. and athletic talent. But it's a similar. I'm in a similar boat with Jalen Wilson as another player who I wrote about. We don't have to get into a deep dive conversation on him, but I really use the same argument for Ricky Council as well. They, they both kind of fall into that same boat for me. I think Jalen Wilson's obviously the better player, but they're both kind of in these similar situations to where they've been low, lower volume, lower usage. Now they're looked at as more of the leading scorers of their team. So it's come with higher volume, but where's the efficiency? Where's, where's the, the professionalism when it comes to making decisions and taking those shots? Where is their approach to the game at? Where is their attentiveness, their consistency mm-hmm. on a night to night basis? I haven't seen that consistency from them and that's why they've fallen. So I'm curious to see where where you're at on the Jalen Wilson conversation. Well, yeah. So I guess technically he's he's fallen a little bit. He went from 31 to 32, and that's more so Noah Clowney coming up from second round um, sure. consideration up into the first, right? So um, I didn't even necessarily feel good about having him in the second either because when I look at a guy who's about what six seven, six eight, somewhere in that neighborhood, hmm. he's six eight. Um, yep. Yeah, he's he's six eight. Uh, measured at and you know he's got good ball skill um I think that if he goes to the NBA he can give you minutes at the three or the four 
And if you can play him at the four, anyone with ball skill at the four is going to drastically improve any sort of a, you know efficiency in terms of rotation that an NBA yeah, team could turn The mismatch on the potential yeah. is off. Yeah. Exactly. And it, when you're talking about efficiency, he had one nasty game against Duke where he just like could not get it going from deep. I think that he like he was either 0 of 7 or 1 of 7, something like that. And that really drug down his percentage. If you take that game out where he just like could not get it going, he's like a 37% three point shooter. And if I'm not mistaken, his last 10, 10 games, he's around 30, like somewhere 35 to 37%. Can, can, can I read you? Can I read you sure. his three point numbers since December Please. 17th? So he was. So since December 17th, there is this is a seven game sample size. So he was one of six, one of six, three of eight, three of nine, two of six, one of two, one of six. So those shooting splits by efficiency standard, they aren't great. Now, if we yeah. take the field goals, the 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 entire body of work from the field into account. 4 of 18, 10 of 17, 7 of 17, 6 of 16, 4 of 12, 3 of 12, 5 of 14. Yes, the, the dude, overall effectiveness from the floor is concerning. That was going to be part of my uh, breakdown yep. here is that inside the three-point line certainly has issues, right? Like he has um, some things that he looks to go to as, a, as an offensive player inside the three-point line. But if I'm projecting him as an NBA player, as a guy who – Right now is averaging what between two and three assists per game. Um, who can you can trust to be a connective type player on offense who can space the floor? He's showing that he can shoot from deep the, this year. The connectivity, um, he was doing that earlier in the year, by the way. He's had so yeah. four, four games this year. Early on, he was seven assists, five assists, four assists, six assists. He he yeah. has the ability to be that player. Exactly. So point, yeah. Yeah, he can he can be that connective side player and and that's what I look at when I'm when I'm looking at Jalen Wilson because he's also a pretty versatile defender as well and mm-hmm. crashes the hell out of the glass too, right? So if I'm looking, has rebounding been his most consistent skill this year? I, I would say the most consistent. I don't yeah. know if that's going to be like his uh, his his best NBA skill, but I, I think hope that's, that's not his calling card. But right, most consistent skill, I think it's been the rebounding. It, it has been there, but I think the three point shot has been effective. You know, but I think you could take a couple of really bad shooting performances out and, and really look at that and say, okay, like there's a baseline there to where he can space the floor, yep. particularly as a four man and the passing is there and the defense, right? So you're checking off a lot of things that NBA teams are looking at, at their four man. Again, I have them at 32. And the reason I want to discuss them because falling past that, it's like, okay, you're really looking at other players that you think can do kind of similar things as to what Jalen Wilson has to offer or you're taking more of an upside swing on some of these younger guys. I think that a team um, like the like the Lakers or, you know, a, a, a competitive team that has multiple picks, maybe even the Boston Celtics um, in the second round could look to take a guy like this early in the second and could really get that return on investment that you were speaking of in the second round. Absolutely. I yeah. I'm curious to, to kind of put a bow on the Jalen Wilson conversation. We'll throw a little philosophy in here. Sure. In regards to older prospects, not not just freshmen and sophomores, but like when we talk about juniors and, and seniors and these older players, where are you at as far as valuing consistency with their production? Do you do you just do you value more that they have certain skills and you've seen examples of them, or do you more heavily lean towards 
it's good that they have skills, but I want to see I want to see the consistency of them using those skills, especially since they've had this time to develop and refine their skill set. I'm going to be super boring and say it's on a case by case okay. where like you have players like Azulis Tubelis and Trace Jackson Davis, who I love. And I think that you can look at what they've done and say, yeah, hell yeah, they're consistent players at the collegiate level of what they've been doing. But also, if you look at the system and the positions that these guys have been playing and try to like make them a little bit more modernized, you could still even talk yourself into saying, hey, these guys have upside in something that we don't really get a chance to see that often. But, you know, I I, I do want to see some level of consistency, right? Like Filipowski, not a consistent player, but has, you know, in terms of like, I would say shooting splits his his number. He's been like, consistent. He's been consistently inefficient, but he's exactly been right. So, but you want to look at a younger player and say, all right, even though he's inefficient, there are areas of his game that I think that he's playing too much at, and the things that he's strong at, I think it helps shine that efficiency a little bit more brighter. Yep. Um. So, coward answer, case by case basis, and it depends on the the class and the position. There's a lot of variability in that. I lean towards the latter. I think it, it, more often than not, I want to see consistency from a draft prospect because when you get to the NBA totally and, mm-hmm. and it becomes your job and you're asked to be a professional, your coach is going to look at you and, and just ask themselves a question. What, what am I going to get out of him on a night-to-night basis? If I don't know what I can expect from a player on a night-to-night basis, why am I going to shovel a ton of minutes their way, especially if I'm trying to win basketball games? And that's, that's just kind of the, the next level that I look at it. Mm-hmm. And that's the type of lens I look through when I'm evaluating players. So I, I think it's a fair question to ask. It, it's one thing if a player is spending a draft pick on somebody who we know they're more of a project. We know they, they need developmental time. And then when they come up, they might not be perfect. you got to feed them reps just for them to get better. But when you're looking at a player like a Jalen Wilson, for example, or a Ricky yeah. Council, or just, just t- toss the list out there of older players – at some point, you have to look at them and say, I, I'm just expecting a certain baseline of consistency sure. from you. And if you can't meet this standard, why am I going to go out of my way to fight for having you at a certain point in my rotation? And when you don't get those reps, when you don't get that playing time, when you can't show someone your value, then your value completely deteriorates. Yeah. And that's how guys don't get the opportunities that they might deserve to stay in the league or work their way up in the league. So that, that's just, I was going to say like, to go back to my case by case, like that depends on if you're looking at like a Jaden McDaniels or a Peyton Watson or an Andrew Nemhart, right? Like depending on three different cases, all three different cases. Right. So I would say it depends on the position that you're trapped in the team that they're going to the age, you know, the skill set that they're looking to hang their hat on at the next level. You know, there's just so many things that play into that. It's, it's an interesting very interesting conversation to, mm-hmm. to have as we get closer to draft time. And it might be, might be a little something that shows up a little more often on this podcast. So who knows, but all right, that that's enough about me. That's enough about what I've written. If you want to read more words on those three prospects, as well as I mentioned Ricky council. And then the last player I wrote about is Tyrese Hunter, who has fallen off of Fair. my board completely. That is, yeah. it, it pains me. When, when I say it pains me, I, yeah, it really does break my heart because I, I had. You said that he could be in the lottery if everything breaks right. I know. Some sometimes you you have to. And, and, and he was a first back round guy for me too. Yeah. If everything breaks right, well, guess what? Not everything. None of it's broken right. right. We yeah. talk about consistency, efficiency, 
he was already fighting an uphill battle. I didn't plan to talk about Tyrese Hunter, but might as well anyway. So he, he was already fighting an uphill battle as it was because he's a six foot guard. If yeah. he's six foot, that might be a little generous. He's a smaller guy. We're we're in a we're in a jumbo sized NBA. Yeah. These guys handling the ball in these primary high usage roles, they're 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 six four, they're six five. Some even taller. If you're Luka Doncic, you're you're six seven, six eight. If you're LeBron, yeah. you're six nine, two hundred sixty pounds, whatever the hell he is. Like where the league is at nowadays, if you're a smaller guard, you better have outlier athletic traits. So you better have outlier speed, outlier strength, outlier build, or you better be damn skilled to where you're making a high degree of your shots. Tyrese Hunter is not doing that. Yeah. His shooting, if anything, has regressed. His playmaking uh-huh. passing, if anything, has regressed compared to last year. I think his defense is still pretty on par. I still love his competitiveness. Yep. He plays hard. He seems like a good leader to have at the point guard position. But when we talk about valuing him as far as his draft stock is concerned, there's just certain baselines that you have to hit. And if you're not hitting those baselines and you're a certain size, you don't have those those. those physical tools or those outlier athletic traits, where am I supposed to value you in a conversation of, I have this whole other pool of players that are the requisite size, do have the requisite skill level. Eric Gaines. Exactly. How, how am I supposed to draft you over some of these other guys? And so that's just sort of how my board has fallen. It's not impossible for Tyrese Hunter to pop back into the conversation, but what was already an uphill battle, Stephen, for me, it's like now he's got to climb a, a little bit of a mountain here. And I just don't think he's going to be able to climb that by the time we get to June. I don't know how you feel. Yeah. I mean, I'm right there with you. My latest three out of a big board and people could come at me if they want, but I don't have them in my top 60 either. And there are a number of guards that have made their debut. A couple of them I just recently wrote about and, uh, are, that's going to be a nice segue. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I mean. It's like we podcast, you know, so, there we go. Um, yeah, um, a couple of these guys too. Reese Beekman, um, most most recent article that I wrote about. Um, by the time everyone's listening to this, it would have dropped yesterday. Uh, calling it "Becoming Beekman," and this is probably one of my most, I would say, fair articles that I wrote about, where I went through and gave like a statistical breakdown of everything that he's done, and he's really kind of an outlier in terms of if you do a Bartorovic query, which everyone does, um, and you look at a lot of key metrics that you want your point guards to have. He and Shabazz Napier are the only players in their database that meet a lot of these marks. You start bringing a couple of these down, and you're looking at John Conjar. You're looking at Kyle Anderson. So even though that those aren't like big names, those are NBA level players. I want right? you to I want you to throw out the query and the numbers that you reference in your column for the audience out there. Let I told Stephen before we were recording this. I unfortunately did not get to read his column before the podcast. I've had a busy weekend with the fiance. We're trying to still do a lot of things in preparation for the spring and summertime. But I yeah, do so. want Stephen to talk about the the statistical outlier that is Reese Beekman. Because it, it is fascinating when we talk about draft position and analytics and certain teams using models to predict yeah. success in the NBA. Beekman, as the, the model that you're about to lay out, it's a fascinating one and one mm-hmm. that usually points to at least a certain degree of NBA success. Exactly. Right. And so this is why Beekman is coming in at 60 on my latest board and definitely don't have any sort of like a ceiling or door shut in his face for him mm-hmm. to climb higher. Um, he's act, part of my breakdown, Nathan, or 
part of my evaluation is that how he's kind of like becoming just like this like chronic riser where it's just like gradually happening on boards because he really wasn't on any coming in. But um, here's the query that I ran. Uh, just bear with me. It's a lot of words and, and numbers here. So minutes percentage of 65% or more. Uh, box plus minus of five or more. Offensive rating of 110 or more. Uses percentage of 20 or more. True shooting percentage of 55 or more. Offensive rebounding percentage of one or more. Defensive rebounding percentage of 10 or more. Assist percentage of 30 or more. Turnover percentage of 20 or less. Uh, blocks percentage of one or more. Steals percentage of three or more. Free throw rate of 35 or more and a three-point percentage of 40 or more. So basically the reason that I run that query, Nathan, is because it's like, what's his overall impact of the game? How many different areas of the game is he influencing? Typically, whenever we're looking at players making the jump up from one level to the NBA, uh, typically they're outliers in terms of rebounding, right? Um, assist percentage to turnover percentage, I think that speaks cleanly. And then it, does he do enough on the defensive end to where you can say, okay, despite his size at his position, can you trust him to play passing lanes? Is he athletic enough to make plays on the ball? Yeah, to and me, does... to me, this this whole query is your perfect yeah. example of one that encompasses athletic baselines can be mm -hmm. met in this query. Offensive impact in terms of efficiency and usage can be measured in this query. And yeah. then defensive effectiveness is defensive effectiveness, excuse me, like you just talked about. All four of those things that what NBA teams are looking at, they all encompass that query. And it's also it's pretty amazing, Steven, to see is like a what is he six foot two? Is he yeah, I think he's six listed three. at six three, but six he looks three. six two. He's probably to, smaller. Um to, to six, see a player I, of that height meet all of these things yeah. in one season, that's remarkable. And I've and I even mentioned in my article that six three is just like the generic size that people throw out. I wouldn't be surprised if he was a little smaller. But here's some cool little things that you could do to the database to to and get this, Nathan. You could tweak the database to make former and current NBA players match to what he's doing, not the other way around, right? So you're talking about making proven entities on par with what he is doing right now instead of the unproven talent match them. So pretty, pretty neat there. So if you um, omit the three-point percentage, it opens up to show DeLon Wright and John Conkar. If you take out the third, the uh, turnover percentage, Jeremy Lin and Kyle Anderson show up there, right? So there are certain things that you can do, and then that database opens up to even more uh, comparable productivity from NBA players that have have made a success and there's not a lot of um, obscure players that match in there too typically when you run a Bartorvik database you get some obscure names in there too but it's all proven NBA players and so in this article I talk about the passing which not necessarily the biggest fan of but I think that he does enough to where you can trust him in a second unit or you know second or third playmaker on a team I talk about the defense and how I think that he does have excellent um, court awareness to that and obviously I'm not a big fan of his shooting mechanics and I talk about that too but at the end of the day Nathan it doesn't matter if I'm a big fan of his shooting it mechanics he's 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 making it at a high clip so I mean you can got, look at guys like Kevin Martin Tyrese Halliburton Sean Marion you know old players um, that we've seen that don't have the the purest of forms but it works for him you you wrote about this in your column with him though you referenced his, which to me, this is his biggest concern, is the the rim pressure and the at-rim finishing, yeah. right? So he's not an explosive athlete at the guard position, right. and he's not a good finisher at the basket. So I'm assuming that those two things definitely limit where you would put him on a big board. Like, let's say 
he keeps playing while he still continues to climb up your board. Maybe he becomes like a mid-second rounder. I'm assuming because of those ineffectiveness, ineffective areas, there's a certain cap to where you would put him on your big board. Yeah, and I go over how coming into the season, like none of the reputable outlets, including ourselves, didn't have him listed. And um, come, you know, more and more updates and things like that. There are people that have a high priority second round pick on them. I don't know if I subscribe to that. I think that I would be more comfortable somewhere in that 40 and on range. But when I look at some of where these other places are putting him at like 32, 33, even though he met, you know, meets the mark to some really proven NBA level talent at the end of the day, the size, the, the, the amount of time that it takes for him to get his shot off and how he can get chased off the line. If that's really going to be his NBA level skill, a little bit concerning. And again, the size, like, you could be as good a defender as you want, but at the end of the day, you're probably still going to get picked on, right? So there is enough in there to where I would probably cap him in that like 40 range, but still I think that he's definitely worth investing draft capital in. His his best games, he looks like a Jared Butler type of guard, right? But when, yep. when it's not coming together for him, when he is a little bit more limited, he looks like a, a, a mid a mid to late second round pick. And that's the type yeah. of grade that, that I have on him. That's the type of grade that you have on him, whether we come up a little bit higher or not. I think that's a very appropriate rate for somebody like Reese Beekman. If you heavily believe in statistics and analytics, which that that's a real thing. Some people will buy yeah. into the level of production analytically versus some of these little things that you and I can pick apart on the tape, like we just talked about you may want to buy into him with a with an early second or even a late first round grade. That that that's fine if you want to make that your pick. That's perfectly fine with me. I lean a different direction in my draft philosophy. I think you do as well. But I am really glad to see you experimenting more this year with your statistical analysis cuz I yeah. do think regardless of where the tape and the stats meet up the analytics can uncover some really interesting questions to ask about a player. And that to me is what they should always be used for. Use the analytics to ask the questions, use the tape to answer the questions. So I think that seeing you grow in that process to me is exciting. And I've been really encouraged by you developing as a scout this year in that particular area. Yeah. I mean, when we're not, when we're not learning, we die, right? Like, isn't that the gift that people uh, that we put in the group (laughs) at the other day? So if we're not improving, we're dead. Um, but the next prospect, Nathan, that I want to go over, um, this was the one that you alluded to. Uh, Brandon Pajamski is the prospect. Not only did I write about, but I was able to get a little bit of his time before he went on to go beat Pepperdine. He prepared for that game and then give Gonzaga a hell of a He match. had a big so, week, man. Yeah, he a, a great game. I would like to say that my interview had anything to do with it at all. But um, <laughs> if you read the article, you'll understand that uh, Pajamski, who – you know, the name of the article that I have is a path to greatness and greatness could be one of those like, you know, hot button words where people could be like, well, what do you mean? He's not even like a top 50. It doesn't matter. Right. Like the fact that he's made it to where he has now, um, the fact that even though that he was in one of the best draft classes in recent history um, was ranked late, that speaks very highly. You know, he was ranked highly on RSCI to the point to where he was over Jeremy Sohan, who plays in the NBA right now. So like people looked at this kid, thought he was talented enough, compared him to the next Tyler Hero, goes to Illinois, a um, lot of upperclassmen on that team, doesn't really get to see a lot of uh, time on the floor, but still gave them hell in practice and was still um, a player that took everything that was given to him and learned from it and moved on to Santa Clara to relieve Jalen Williams, who's friend of the program here, um, went to relieve him. And now he is showing everything 
that he knew that he could do himself, that Santa Clara believed that he can do now. Nathan, I'm going to give you another bar tour of a query that I've used in this. And obviously, Here we go. I, rele- I released this last Tuesday, so some of these numbers um, might be um, outdated. But look at this. So in the entire database in Bartorvik, when I ran a minutes percentage of 80 or more, so, you know, pretty heavily used, BPM of five or more, offensive rating of 110 or more, usage percentage of 25 or more, true shooters percentage of 55 or more, offensive rebound one or more, defensive rebound 10 or more, assist percentage of 20 or more, still percentage of two or more, free throw rate of 33 or more, while having a three-point percentage of 37 or more. Some of the names, Nathan, that he is in company with include Steph Curry, James Harden, Damian Lillard, George Hill, Derek White, Kyle Anderson, right? So like star level NBA players and role player level of NBA players. There's also some of those obscure players that I was kind of talking about earlier. But if you look at the total offensive package that Pajemski has, floor spacing at a premium in the NBA, especially at a guard spot, he can do that. He's probably not going to be your lead guard. As a matter of fact, he he talks about how he compares himself to like a Dante DiVincenzo who can put the ball on the floor, can make plays, um, can do a lot of other things on the floor, but you can trust him to make. Do you smart think decisions. he's that athletic? I think that he could. I think that he could um, be at that DiVincenzo level. Like now, I probably wouldn't say Villanova DiVincenzo because we, yeah. So it's a fun story. When I was when I was still was it when I was in college? No, it was when I was, since I was out of college. I went to a game so it was Dante DiVincenzo's sophomore year before he came into the NBA I went to the Temple Villanova game yeah Villanova and I saw DiVincenzo in the in the layup line warming up I I some of the dunks he was throwing down Stephen holy, holy hell like yeah I, I I haven't seen I haven't seen too many players pull off in a layup line when he can he is he was absolutely was an underrated athlete coming out now you made a good point where he is now he's had some injuries he doesn't have the same mm-hmm. bounce but Still an effective player. If he can meet that level of athleticism, now you're now you can throw in some of the other skills that you start to outline with that query. I, I think for for Pachemski, for me, it comes back to where I would rate his athleticism. To me, I haven't yeah. seen enough of the tape to make a determination on that one way or the other, which is why I definitely need to go back and watch some more Santa Clara basketball. But I watched I watched the Gonzaga and the Pepperdine games. Great games. I, Act tremendous games. Yeah, I think he's a good athlete. I think yeah. he's a good athlete. I don't know if he's on his way to being above that mark. I just wonder how much of that zip that pop do you need to be the type of guard that you might be outlining the 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 upside to where you're taking him in the top forty five of an NBA draft, for example, or he's the one of those guys where maybe he's not that type of athlete. Maybe he's not that level of a shooter to where you're looking at him as like a borderline draftable type of talent. Well, and I think Nathan, we talked about it a little bit with Proctor earlier was that if you're not going to have that top shelf athleticism, what does your feel look like? Especially if you're operating out of the pick and roll. And I do highlight that in this piece. And when I was talking about how pick and roll, hitting the roller with a bounce pass or a lob, like those are practice. But if you look at true on ball feel, like Pajemski, I highlight a number of different looks that he gives you where he's diving or he's attacking the basket and he can hit the roller. He's attacking the basket. He can hit the cutter. He's attacking the basket. He can pull back and hit a rotation, a guy rotating onto the wing. So he has a good overall court awareness to where even though his athleticism probably isn't going to be in like that upper, you know, 70 percentile or anything like that, 
he does enough with the ball in his hands where he's constantly a threat. He can put pressure on the rim. He has shooting gravity and he has such great understanding and court awareness and everything that, you know, talking to him, reading about him, doing my homework on other interviews and, um, you know, deep dives on him. He has the workman's path, right? And that's his path of greatness. It's, he didn't have, you know, deep family roots into the game. He wasn't like this prodigy. He actually probably came to the game later than some of the other players that we've talked about a good bit today. But because of his work ethic, because of, you know, his high level of feel and understanding, and he's grown both in size and maturity, I think that that has um, helped him to become one of the most productive college basketball players this year. I will say the the two things, maybe you can speak a, f- a little bit more on these fronts regarding mm-hmm. your, your film study and your peace autumn. Number one, actually, I'll say I'll say three things. Number one, okay. he rebounds the hell out of a ball for, yep. for a guard. And maybe that that is the type of positive indicator that I need to look at to justify where he might be as an athlete. Number two, I think that the way he gets involved defensively in terms of his activity level, stealing the basketball and getting his team out of the break. I'd really love to see that on that side of the ball. And then number three, I know he averages 2.2 turnovers per game, Stephen, but he feels like a low mistake player. And what I mean by that is a lot of his turnovers to me, at least from what I've seen, I I haven't watched all 19 of Santa Clara's games, but from what I've seen, it feels like he's not committing a lot of dumb mistakes to where his turnovers are live ball turnovers. They just seems like, you know, some bad things happen just like they do to every player. At least they're like dead possession turnovers to where they're they're not changing the flow of the game. So he's not making those type of mistakes, which is what you would want to see from a guy who, if you believe he has secondary ball handler upside to where he's making decisions for others, you don't want to see him making a lot of these poor mistakes to where it's it's all these live ball turnovers, all these runouts now you're giving up points on the other end. Yeah, Nathan, I'm sure you're a lot like this too, but when I look at just raw turnover numbers, I want to know the context, right? Absolutely. Um, if you look that, on... That's the context. Well, are they are they live ball turnovers or are they just you dribble the ball off yourself as a dead possession, like shit, things happen, like they happen to everybody? It's him being the the offensive engine on this team. Um, if you look, Santa Clara is not a, a highly you know recruiting powerhouse. As a matter of fact, I believe that Pajemski is the only RSEI top 100 prospect that they've had on this have on their team in any class that any of these players have come in at, right? So he is like the best player hands down that they have on this team and the best player that they brought in in quite some time. Um, There's also the fact that he's got a usage percentage of 80 or more. And just by virtue of having the ball in your hand as much as he does. And if you look at the assist numbers, you know, they're very promising, right? So if you're being trusted with the ball in your hand, you're the best player on your team. You're trusted to create the most out of anybody else on this team. I think 2.2 is actually low. I was I was expecting that number to be a little bit higher. That's um, what I'm it, saying. Like so yeah. so you can you can look at the turnovers and you can look at three and a half assists to 2.2 turnovers and you're like, yeah, yeah, you're over you're over one assist to turnover, but yeah. if you're going to handle more responsibility, you might expect those numbers to be a little bit yeah. higher in the assist category, a little bit lower in the turnover category. But given the context of the turnovers, you actually yeah. feel really good about where that split is by the film. Absolutely. And and consider this too, Nathan, like I know technically he's not a freshman, but if you looked at the minutes per game that he played last year and the number of games, it's very low. I believe it's like under five minutes per game. And, and it wasn't a whole heck of a lot of games. This is essentially his first year on with a high efficiency role. He's playing in the WCC, which that's not the best level of competition, but if we're talking about prospects that are coming into this year's draft, 
I mean, we got Gonzaga, we got uh, Pepperdine. San Francisco is always a tough game, right? So there are good, there's good level of competition. That on conference team. is good. That is a yes. good college basketball yes. conference. That's not like going out and playing in the big sky or, or something. Exactly. Like that. So this is his first real opportunity with a ball in his hand being the guy against high level of competition. And I've been highly encouraged with everything that I've seen from him when I did my deep dive. I've been encouraged on the tape that I've seen as well. I fun, fun question to, to go out on this podcast on a high sure. note. I, I think I know the answer to this question. So out of those two players we just talked about, who do you think is going to end up higher in your draft board? Reese Beekman well, or Brandon Pachemski? Who I think ends up, I think that that's up in the air right now. I got Beekman over Pajemski. I'm not so sure that I don't just say, well, as close as they are, Pajemski is bigger. He does more, I feel like, with the ball in his hand. As I, a think, live, I think as I a like Brandon more than Reese Beekman. I, 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 think, I think Brandon has a real shot of climbing up even higher. The fact that he is where he is right now, you don't see his name mentioned a lot. So I think that speaks highly to you know, the, the level of character that he has for himself and, you know, the, the player that he is on the core, but Brandon could continue to climb. He's a, he's a very talented player. How'd you get the feel from, from the interview with him? You think he's a good kid? Dude, he's um no nonsense, straight to business. Um, Some Love people it. might view that some different type of way, but he was like, you know, happy to be here, you know, happy to go over anything. I asked him about his time at Illinois and he didn't shy away from it. You know, he actually was like, I'm very, um, thankful for the opportunity that they gave me. I learned a lot from it. And uh, again, hardworking kid, man, like nothing negative to say about him at all. And he, all he wants to do is play basketball. Like that is all he cares about there. He even says in the interview and it's mentioned in the article, there's no plan B for him. Like the ships are burned. He's, he's committed to trying to make the league. I love it. I, I love everything that I've I've heard about him. I loved reading your piece. The, you can check out the the interview certainly on our No Ceilings podcast feed. You can read the piece that that Stephen wrote, obviously on NoCeilingsNBA.com, as well as his Reese mm-hmm. Beekman piece. And you can find my columns, the Morning Dunk, every single Monday morning on NoCeilingsNBA.com. So make sure you are subscribed on all fronts. We're pumping out content every Monday through Friday. We are yep. grinding. It is peak draft season right now because this how many is when... prospects have we covered individually nathan and and mentioned like what are the numbers your most up-to-date ones that you remember so on our on our no ceilings nba.com sub stack we have covered 42 now with reese beekman 42 individual player profiles we have up and then we've talked about more than 50 other podcast uh, 50 other prospects between podcasts between other writing that we've done group pieces combo pieces kind of like what I put together on a Monday. We have covered this draft head to toe. And mm. it's it's mid-January. We're recording this podcast on January 15th. So trust me, when I say it is peak draft season over here, no, it's not lottery time. No, it's not June. But this is really when the the bones are are made as far as our evaluations. This is this is when you're going to the tape. This is when live games are being played. A yep. lot of the bulk and the basis of our evaluations are usually done by around tournament time. And then we have yeah. the months in between the nitpick, but this is when a lot of the hard work is being done and we're producing content along with doing the hard work. So please make sure you check out everything we are doing at NoSillingsNBA.com, NoSillingsNBA podcast feed, subscribe, rate, review, wherever you get your podcast. Certainly if you want more from Steven and I on social media, you can follow me, on Twitter at Draft Deeper, you can follow Stephen 
on Twitter at Stephen G Hoops to close out the episode. Stephen, anything else you want to say? I just want to shout out um, Maxwell too. You know, he's got great pieces coming up this Tuesday. And, um, you know, follow him on Twitter at Boundboards. You know, um, the Draft Deeper family, um, we're, we're busting our asses over here. And the No Ceilings family at large is too. So, and I believe that we got some pretty, uh, some pretty big projects coming down the pipe too. So like Nathan said, subscribe on all accounts, all fronts. And uh, we really appreciate just the, the support that we've gotten so far, both in terms of subscription and just dialogue on social media. Please don't be afraid to reach out and let us know if, you know, ask us what we think about a prospect, you know, let us know if you feel like we're wrong. We'll have that conversation with you. Rumor has it next Monday, we have another mock posit draft coming out. I love mock posit. So that's, that's going to be a fun one. But until then, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.